Today, I'll be reading from Luke 19, 1 through 10. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen as I read the passage aloud for us. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be with the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. It's great to be with you all this morning. Great to be back here. My wife and I love this church. We watch your services online regularly. If we weren't, uh, didn't have PTSD from living in winters for eight years in Boston, we probably would venture to live in a little bit more colder city, but we've instead settled for idolatry in Southern California. So um, that's where we are right now. Uh, would you pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convey these truths to our hearts today. We want to leave here today with a greater sense of hope, a sense that not only do you see us, you're deeply working in our lives and you're conspiring for our good. You're conspiring for the good of this city and you're using the lives here, one relationship at a time, to help do that work. And so we ask now that you would speak to our hearts in the way that only you can, in the way that no human or language can. And we pray that you do that with us now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There are these rare times in life where we encounter the story of another human, and it inspires us to want to live more courageously, more vulnerably, more faithfully than we had before. And these stories, sometimes when we encounter them, they even empower us to believe that change for us is possible. Um, I can remember where I was sitting in my home when I came across the story of Viktor Frankl. It was 2018. It was a winter, cold, icy day in Boston. Most days in Boston are winter, cold, icy days. I was still pastoring the church there. My leg was propped up because I had a torn MCL um, from jiu-jitsu. I'd gone back into jiu-jitsu because... I, it was an effort for me to fight the demons of depression that had plagued me for a handful of years leading up to that point, and was also an attempt to do that, uh, not escaping to an overdependence on sleeping pills and alcohol. Days earlier, I had pleaded with God for a, a message, a message of hope, encouragement, and that's when I read Frankel's book, Man's Search for, Search for Meaning. It's a book from a psychiatrist who survived four Nazi concentration camps, the loss of his wife, his mom and dad, and his life's work. And I remember when I read this book and the philosophy inside of it, reading, leaning forward in my chair and telling my wife, this message may be the most hopeful 
uh, therapy session that I've encountered in all these years. It was highly impactful because Frankel seemed to live from an almost anti-fragile identity. Anti-fragile. When you get a box that comes to your house and it says fragile on the outside, you know that the contents inside um, have to be handled with care. If they're kicked around or moved around, uh, it could break easily. Anti-fragile, though, is this kind of sense like if you got a box that said contents inside are anti-fragile, you're like, wait, what? means no matter how much you kick this box around, it actually will get stronger the more it's kicked around. We don't get those packages. That's the kind of identity that Frankel seemed to live with, though. As he learned about identity while suffering through the Nazi concentration camp, he said this, the majority of prisoners suffered from a kind of inferiority complex. We had all once been or fancied ourselves to be somebody. But now we were treated like complete non-entities. When consciousness of one's inner value is anchored in higher, more spiritual things, it cannot be shaken by camp life. But how many free men or women, let alone prisoners in a concentration camp, possess it? How many of us possess this anti-fragile sort of identity? And what I'm talking about is not the kind of identity that's built up with uh, like more ice baths, although I love ice baths, or more, you know, more um, stoic kinds of movements in our lives. I'm ca- talking about something that is more um, uh, existentially rooted than that. What would we need to live in an anti-fragile identity as our normal state, Periodically, I'll get glimpses of this in my own life, but this is not my normal state of life. And they say that preachers tend to preach on the subject that they need the most. So since I rarely ever preach anymore, I'll let you do the math. This story about this man named Zacchaeus shows us what it's like to build an anti-fragile identity in three acts. The first is our desperate search. The second we'll see is our fragile option, and the third is the anti-fragile invitation. So first, our desperate search. This man Zacchaeus, he climbs this tree in effort to find or see this rabbi walking through the street because he can't, he needs a better glimpse. So at one point when I passed him in Boston, our services had to meet outside because we had some building issues. We had to meet outside for a period of weeks. And it was wild to me that hundreds of people would gather to worship outside, sometimes in uncomfortable conditions. And sometimes when I'd be speaking, people would be walking down the street and they would stop and they would stare. Or people would come out of their homes and sit on their stoops and they would sit there for the entirety of the message and listen. But not once did I ever see a wealthy-looking businessman climb into a tree just to get a better view or to hear more of what I was saying. Because if I did, there's some inferences I would make about that person. If I saw that happening, or you saw that happening, what would you suppose about that person? At the very least, you would suppose that they're desperately searching for something. They're looking for something. That's what's happening with Zacchaeus, or Zach as we'll call him for short. 
He runs ahead of the crowd and he climbs up a tree just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. But what for? What is he looking for? What is he searching for? And I want to pause here and ask you the honest question, what is it that you're searching for today? Because you didn't climb a tree to get here, but you did climb out of bed and you did weather some difficulty in order to walk through these doors this morning. But why? I want you to take a moment invite you to even close your eyes for a moment and ask Jesus or tell Jesus, what is it that you're here looking for? And if you found it, how would you know you found it? Some of us, we come because this is part of our normal routine. But what is it today that you're in search of? For some of you, you've been invited here and this is quite outside of your normal routine. Why are you here? Zach is looking to catch a glimpse of this rabbi, but why? About a month ago, I boarded a plane to work with the team in Houston, and I was sitting in business class, which never happened when I was a pastor, and um, quite frankly, it didn't happen on this trip either. So I hope you meet your year-end goal, so next year, you know, um, maybe business class is in in the works. And right in front of me, in first class, you know, there's always that barrier between business class and first class. You're like, if I was just there. Sitting in first class right in front of me was a man who looked like Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus on The Chosen. Now, I am not a fan of most things cheesy Christian content, but The Chosen, I'm a fan. And every time I finish that show, I finish it, A, asking myself, why do I feel so emotional right now? And B, thinking, how can I hang out with that guy? I mean, the guy is Jesus, right? And so (laughs) for the entire flight, I'm trying to catch a glimpse of this guy to see if it's really him. And if if it is him, I'm going to make a beeline toward him. Now, to give you some perspective, I'm not like the average stop a celebrity kind of person. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was camping with my family up in Santa Barbara, and I saw Dave Grohl from Foo Fighters or Nirvana sitting down in the breakfast area having a breakfast burrito with his family. I didn't think about stopping him. At most, I thought, man, I should have said, nice burrito, Dave, but I didn't say anything. (laughs) So why is it that when the plane lands, I immediately stand up and I'm brushing past all the people like, excuse me, I got to get to Jesus real quick, you know? (laughs) And then when I finally meet him, I'm like, are you Jonathan? And he's all, yes. And I say, I really admire you. And then, I, and then he says, uh, excuse me? And I say, well, I don't know you. I admire your work. And then he says, what is your name? And I said, shouldn't you know that already? No. <laughs> A couple of things happen in that moment. Number one, turns out Jesus thinks I'm pretty hilarious. And number two... Apparently, Jesus sits in first class. So I hope you meet your year and goal so that next year when I come, I can be like Jesus. It's my goal. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. But I walked away asking myself, what was it that I was searching for? Like, I'm really rarely ever the person to go stop somebody. And what was I looking for? I told that story to a friend of mine. He's a bishop in the Anglican church and just randomly called me one week and 
I said, uh, you know, there was, I had this conversation in the airport right before that. And I felt like there was this moment, I, I felt hope. I, it was a, a colleague that I ran into, and, and this person is a person of faith, and they were speaking something over me. And then I get on the plane, and I see this guy that plays Jesus on there, and I just ran up to him. And he said to me, Al, maybe it was just God's way of reminding you that he sees you. I said, I'll take it. Zacchaeus is desperately searching to be seen for who he is and who he's becoming because that's how secure identities are formed. Dr. Dan Siegel says that when children are developing, they need a healthy sense of feeling secure, soothed, safe, and seen. As adults, we're still searching for that. That's why um, a lot of you are too young for this. Um, I was born in the 70s, so um, Cheers in the 80s and 90s was a big part of my life. And my wife and I were recently talking about this theme song that they had. And I started singing it. And when I was singing it, I got a lump in my throat and started getting emotional. I'm like, why am I getting emotional over this freaking sitcom song? Well, because it says, making your way in the world today takes everything you got. See, you already don't get it. You're too young for this. (laughs) Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see that troubles are all the same? You want to go where everybody knows your name. They're always glad you came. And these, these characters would walk through the door and everyone would shout their name because they were glad to see them. That's what children are looking for when they enter the world. That's what creates secure attachments. That's what creates secure identities. And it's what you're looking for as, as an adult as well. The problem is that since the Enlightenment, We have been culturally formed to believe that we can answer the question, who am I, by ourselves, by being true to ourselves, by finding ourselves. But science shows that we actually need interaction with another person to form this sense of identity. That, in fact, as a newborn, only about 15 to 20% of our 100 billion neurons are able to do the job that they need to do in order for you to survive. The other 80 to 85% of neurons require interaction with another human in order to develop our sense of self. So identity is less about me asking, who am I, and discovering that on my own, and more about me asking, with whom am I collaborating to tell the story of who I am becoming? Who are the people in my life that are helping me tell my story more truly? The modern approach to building an identity is problematic because my brain knows better. It knows I can't do this on my own. It knows I can't answer the question by myself of who I am. And when I can't answer the question, I become anxious. And if I don't know how to deal with that anxiety, I'm still expected to figure that out by myself, according to modern culture. And if my anxiety is something that I wrestle with long enough and it outpaces my ability to cope then at some point your brain will run out of gas and you'll become depressed, which is what I experienced for about four or five years at that point. And then modern culture says that if I just try harder, that I can do what I need to overcome that, which is something my brain is unable to do on its own. We desperately need to be seen for who we are, but also for who we're becoming. 
I can't answer the question, who am I? Because 10 minutes from now, 10 months from now, 10 years from now, I'll be an entirely different person. But with whom am I collaborating to tell the story, the true story of who I am becoming? We need someone to help us discover that truth. And that's what Zacchaeus is desperately searching for. Sylvester Stallone talks about this in his recent documentary called Sly. And he talks about the abandonment and the abuse that he experienced from his parents as a child, not seeing someone who's desperately looking for him. He says, people say, oh, you feel deprived and you weren't nurtured. I say, yeah, that's true. And maybe the nurturing comes from the respect and love of strangers. To feel embraced and loved by an audience. It's insatiable. I wish I could get over it, but I can't. Stallone and Zach are desperately searching for the same thing that you and I search for. We want to have a true sense of self that is truly seen by other people or another person for who we are and who we're becoming. But we often settle for the fragile solution. Fragile, a fragile identity. What do I mean by this? I don't mean vulnerable. I mean when I forget, as my, Dave, my friend Dave says, the truest thing about me, and I try to fill a spiritual hole with a, spirit, with a material thing. Zacchaeus is a resourceful man. He doesn't just climb trees because he's short and he can't see. He climbs career ladders when he feels he comes up short and he doesn't feel he matters. It says a lot about him that he's the chief tax collector. To be a tax collector in this culture was to be at best misunderstood and at worst hated for siding with the Roman government and turning your back on your countrymen, your people, just to make a buck. Or in Zacchaeus's case, a lot of bucks. Because we're told he's wealthy. He's a rich man. Now, I imagine that you don't become the chief tax collector, like the highest tax collector, unless you're really trying to either become something or you're trying to overcome something. And therefore, do some dirt in the process in order to climb the ladder. So after all of his success, why is he climbing a tree to see this poor young rabbi walk by? I believe it's because he still feels a sense of lostness. And I know this because at the end of this story, Jesus says these words, for the son of man came, I came to seek and save the lost. Zach is trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing, and I can, totally, I can totally sympathize with it. You'll see in a moment where I stole that phrase from. Again, Stallone says, once you get your dream, or you get to your dream, you realize, that wasn't my dream. It's not turned out the way that I thought. It also comes with a storm front that you're constantly battling because you're like, Oh, snap. I thought that once I made it to the top of the mountain, it was all blue skies. It's not any snarls. It's pretty lonely. Sometimes climbing to the top of the mountain is not all it's cracked up to be. And that leaves a hole. And that hole is never filled. 
This phrase, fragile, fra fragile identity, comes from the philosopher Charles Taylor. Taylor believed that the modern form of finding ourselves actually creates the most kind of fragile sense of self. It makes you, number one, an approval junkie. Because I'm constantly looking for whom I matter, where my worth is coming from. It makes me a sucker for marketers. Because I'm constantly falling to the trap of there's something just beyond myself out there that if I purchase or pursue, it'll make me whole. It causes me to create exclusive communities with people who are like me or who only agree with me. Because if you disagree with me, my identity is too fragile to stand up under the pressure of someone who sees it differently from me. And at the end of the day, it's just an illusion. Why? Because whereas traditional forms of identity formation were based on social bonds, external validation, it was somewhat limiting, right? If you're born a king, you're probably going to be a king. If you're born into a, a noble family, you're probably going to be nobility. If you're born a commoner, you're probably going to stay a commoner and be a farmer in the land. It's somewhat limiting, but it's also somewhat freeing in that constraint. Because at least I know who I'm deputizing my sense of worth and well-being too. If my parents think I'm great, then I guess I'm great. If the community thinks I'm great, I guess I'm great. But in our modern form, we say, I'm being true to myself, all the while not knowing that I'm actually deputizing it to multiple people and posting in order to receive the validation that I really desperately need. So, Matthew Perry, where I got the phrase from, says this, the late, tragically, Matthew Perry, who recently died from friends, I was pretty sure fame could change everything. And I yearned for it more than any other person on the face of the planet. I needed it. I was sure it was the only thing that could fix me. I was certain of it. But the magic never lasts. Whatever holes you're filling seem to keep coming back up. It's like whack-a-mole. Maybe because I was always trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. You have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. And nobody who is not famous will ever truly believe that. Right? It's like people who always say like, well, money's not the answer. I got rich and I just found out it wasn't the, th the case. And the rest of us are like, I just want to try it myself though. <laughs> At least that's what Pastor Dave Lomas says a lot. So... Matthew Perry is describing the universal problem that King Solomon mentions in Ecclesiastes when he says, God has placed eternity in our hearts. There is a spiritual hole, a gap. Or Augustine says in Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Or as Soren Kierkegaard says, Sin, essentially, is building your identity on anything but God. Why then do we continue to try to fill that spiritual hole with a material thing? I'll tell you why I do it. Two reasons. The first is shame. Have you ever wondered why the first humans in the garden in the Genesis creation story were even tempted to eat of the fruit of the garden? Like, they had everything. 
great home, bills are paid, no taxes, it's good. So what is it that they're even tempted by? What draws them into that? Well, it's the same reason why they cover up and hide from God after they eat of it. Shame. The serpent's game is simple. It kind of works like a great marketing campaign. First, he creates an immense amount of insecurity. Then he brings contradiction, discontentment, and comparison. He contradicts God when he says, come on, Eve, are you really going to die if you eat of this fruit? You're not going to die. Did God really say that? And then he creates discontentment. He makes Eve think that she needs something else outside of herself in addition to what God has already given to her. And he does this through comparison. He causes the woman to believe the message, you don't measure up. It's not enough to be you. You could trade your identity for another and you could be like somebody else, actually. In this case, you could be like God. His questions are subtle. His message is convincing. And the longer she scrolls through this feed, the hungrier she is for the fruit. They forget the truest thing about them, and they try to fill their spiritual hole with a material thing, and it destroys their relationship. The wisdom that she thinks she's going to gain and that Adam thinks he'll gain results in them losing their original identity and in the process, losing their true sense of self. The shame continues because when they eat and God comes looking for them after the forbidden, what do they do? They hide themselves. They construct leaves to cover themselves, the most vulnerable parts of themselves. Prior to this, they were naked, vulnerable, The parts of them that were most vulnerable could actually be seen and they were unashamed. And now they are naked and they feel the sense of shame. So what do they do? They seek to cover. They create fig leaves for themselves. And that's why we create coping strategies. It's why we create self-images and behaviors, also known as personas or personalities, which are not the true essence of who we are. We want to survive in the world, but they also cause us to forget our true nature, that I'm an image bearer of God. And quite honestly, what got you here won't get you there. I imagine that in Zacchaeus' story, it also includes some shame. It's not a huge leap to believe that the details of him being a short man isn't part of his larger backstory. Any message that says you don't measure up will have an effect on what you believe about you and what you tend to do as a result to overcome that. My own story plays out in this, and and, um, I was uh, raised my early part of my childhood in a very impoverished trailer park. Um, I was the first person in my family, both sides, to go to university. I was a pastor for many years, And so now when I find myself in these boardrooms with these executives who have gone to the best schools in the world and have sent their kids to the best schools in the world, what do I tend to feel? I tend to feel like I don't measure up, that I'm alone, and I want to shame. I want to distance myself and hide, and I want to put pressure on myself and the people around me 
because I need to get there and you're not helping me get there. It's been the core of marriage counseling for me in 23 years of marriage, 22 years. And it's the core of the work that, inner work that I've been doing in the last couple of years as well. There's a second, and I'll go through this one fairly quickly, reason why I tend to want to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing, and that is fear. Um, when we were camping a couple of weeks ago, there was other parents there, and one of our friends was talking about how he is oftentimes more than he wants to be harsh with his son when his son appears overly emotional or is mean to his sister. And um, I asked, my wife asked him, actually, in that moment, um, what are you feeling? Because our anger tends to be ma a mask for sadness or fear. And he says, in that moment, I'm feeling afraid. I'm feeling afraid that I've failed as a dad, and I'm feeling afraid that my son is going to fail in the world. And so I put pressure. See, he's feeling fear, he believes a message about himself, and he responds accordingly. And in a recent interview between Arthur Brooks, who co-wrote a bestseller recently with Oprah, and biohacker, business investor Tim Ferriss, um, uh, it was a podcast, Brooks is actually talking to Ferris about Thomas Aquinas' view on happiness. And Aquinas' view of happiness is actually that we, underneath what we're doing, we're actually seeking, pursuing the divine. It's what we all want. We don't all necessarily know it. It's uncomfortable. So we trade that pursuit of the divine with one of four types of God substitutes or idols. Money, power, fame, and pleasure, or as he calls them, New York, LA, DC, and Vegas. And SF wasn't in there, but I'm, I imagine it's a hodgepodge of all of it, right? And Brooks tells Ferris, so I have a game. It's called Name Your Idol. You wanna play? Ferris says, sure, let's do it. And Brooks says, the truth is none of us has all four. None of us is so vice-ridden that we, don't, we don't, just don't have the energy or time to be a servant of all four. And Ferris says jokingly, you underestimate me, sir. So they go off on this game moving from power to fame to money, each of which says, Ferris, uh, that's not really my thing. It maybe was my thing when I was younger, but then I tasted it and I realized it's not really my thing. And then so Brooks says, okay, there's one left and it's getting hot in here. And Ferris says, yep, we have a winner. Mine is pleasure. And Ferris goes on to talk about what he's looking for beyond just the pleasure, specifically sexual pleasure. He says, well, given my history of depression, I fear, there it is, it's opposite. So I chase pleasure as hopefully some inoculation against darkness, shame and fear. Brooks then says, well, pleasure tends to be numbing. There's nothing wrong with feeling good, but there's a difference between enjoyment and pleasure. Pleasure is fentanyl. Nobody enjoys fentanyl. Like, no one's like, fentanyl's the best. But they do it as a way to eviscerate memory. It's the same with pleasure. Foster Wallace, David Foster Wallace says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are the default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. This comes from a man who, as far as I know, is not a man of faith. 
So that's when Ferris comes back and says, okay, doctor, so what's the solution? And that's what Zacchaeus is desperately looking for, and it's also what he's about to find. And that's where we come to the anti-fragile invitation. See, anti-fragile identity requires loving attachment so that you can live out your ideals rather than pursue your idols. Anti-fragile identity first requires loving attachment. Look at verse 5. When Jesus reaches the spot, he stops and he looks up and he sees him for who he is and who he's becoming. And he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus is searching for something. And to his surprise, there's somebody else who's actually searching for him. Two clues shows us that Jesus is actually looking for him, not just accidentally. The first clue is that Jesus reaches the spot. He stops and he makes his eye contact gaze onto Zacchaeus and he says, hurry up and come down. He's matching Zacchaeus' own energy by racing to the tree and climbing up. Secondly, he says, I must stay at your house tonight. That would have suggested to the audience, this is A, an intentional act of divine will, and B, an act of solidarity. I'm gonna, we're going to have fellowship. We're going to hang out. We're going to eat together. Man, I wish Jonathan Rumi would have said that to me on the plane, but you know, that's a different story. Maybe the most compelling reason we know Jesus is looking for Zacchaeus is because in verse 10 he says, I came to seek and save that which feels lost. An anti-fragile identity requires a loving attachment. And Zacchaeus is feeling this. That's why verse 6, it says, So Zacchaeus comes down at once, welcomes Jesus gladly, and all the people saw it and began to mutter, Wait, he's going to eat in the house? He's going to be a guest of a sinner? All they can see, who he is and who he's becoming, is a sinful man a tax collector. But when Zacchaeus hears this from Jesus and receives his invitation, he stands up. It's an important phrase. His entire life, he's been short. Who knows? Maybe that's the contributor for him climbing the corporate ladder. He's had something to prove, a deep need to feel validated. But when Jesus sees him, he sees more than a short man and more than a sinful man. He sees a genuine seeker and he calls him son. And he welcomes him. And when he does, Zacchaeus stands up and stands tall. Zacchaeus is experiencing what psychologists call loving attachment. One neuropsychologist says, when we're born, we're born to form attachments. Our brains are physically wired to develop in tandem with another's through emotional communication, beginning before words are spoken. And there's like 50 plus years on research about attachment. At the basic level from birth, children create attachments through physical connection with a caregiver to create safety. And when our caregivers respond sensitively and timely and appropriately to our distresses and our needs for the long term, it creates secure attachments. Insecure attachments, however, are formed when the attachment relationship doesn't provide what we need, doesn't provide that sense of safety, doesn't 
provide us a sense of being watched or seen for who we are and who we're becoming. And so the child then creates secondary strategies to help them cope, ranging from anxious attachments to avoidant attachments and somewhere in between as well. The good news, though, is that all attachment research shows that we can create healthy, meaningful attachments into our adult years and reverse what we have experienced in the past. For example, Dallas Willard, philosopher, theologian from USC. As a two-year-old boy, when, his, when he was very young, his mom died. And when he went to the funeral, this two-year-old boy tried to climb into the casket to be physically connected to his mom again. When he's about to die many, many years later into his older age, with tears in his eyes, he stares at the ground and he's talking to a friend and he tells him, what I have learned in the past year about attachment is more important than what I've learned in the rest of my life, but I don't have time to write about it. You have to write about it. Willard had come to believe that salvation, the salvation Jesus is talking about, I came to seek and save, salvation in Jesus is really about a new and active attachment with God. One that forms and transforms our identity. And as far as the brain is concerned, character change can only be found in new and better ways of attachment. That's why Zacchaeus is responding the way he does. And this experience is available to you and me today. It's why Jesus says to you as well, to this church, listen, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I want to come into your house. I want to dine with you. I want to stay with you. If anyone hears my voice and opens to me, I will come into him and I will have dinner with him and he with me. And he makes comments to you, commitments to you, identity forming commitments like, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain attached in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will attach yourself to my love. Just as I've kept my father's commands and remain attached in his love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And it's why he addresses all of our deep fears of abandonment when he says, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. These aren't just words that Zacchaeus hears. He sees it lived out on the cross when Jesus himself climbs up a tree on his behalf. This loving attachment is what reframes his identity. He's no longer just a sinful man, as his community calls him. He's now a son. And Jesus says to him in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Lastly, and very quickly, an anti-fragile identity requires a loving attachment to live our ideals. Look what Zacchaeus' response is. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back retribution four times the amount. He's living out his ideals, his deepest values. Why? Because he's being loved into loving. Our ideals, our values, that's really what, I mean, that's, that's the essence of how we live a life of flourishing. 
And we don't just do that by more willpower. We do that the more and more we feel and sense this attachment, loving attachment to Jesus. You can't immediately just start carrying out great feats of generosity or patience, but what you can do is focus on shaping your next action according to the ideal that you have in mind. For Zacchaeus, it's generosity, it's justice, it's presence. What is it for you? The core of my own marriage counseling and even my own personal counseling has been essentially boiled down to four steps. Number one, what do I believe about me right now? What am I feeling about me? What's the message there? Two, when I believe that, what do I tend to do? Three, what is true? Jesus is completely reframing for Zach and you and me what is true. And then four, because that's true, what will I do instead? That's the choice that you and I can leave here with today.